0: Yeah, it's
1: good, isn't it? We are going to be bringing more and more hymns back, but in a fresh style over the course of the coming months, so uh, we look forward to that. We are uh, in a mini-series looking at the Church of Acts 2, and what we're really doing is looking at Acts as a model for principles of church today. When we go into November, we're going to do a mini-series on speaking in tongues, and the benefits of speaking in tongues. Get really deep into that. There's a lot of teaching that we need. We need to be, have speaking in tongues established in our lives. Uh, We encourage people in the prayer diary to pray in tongues at least 15 minutes a day. If I don't pray in tongues at least 20 minutes a day, I'm no good to anybody. You say, well, I don't pray in tongues 15 minutes a day. Yeah, uh, you know, maybe that's why you're not getting the victory that God wants you to get. I know what it's like to go through life without regular speaking in tongues. And I know what it's like to go through life with regular speaking in tongues. And now that I do it with regular speaking in tongues, I never want to stop doing it again. It's one of those things, isn't it? It's like you don't know the power of prayer until you pray. And so if you don't pray, you don't know any difference. You think, well, I'm not praying. I don't pray much. Well, why don't you pray? I don't know. Just never have done. But when you begin to regularly pray, after a while, it takes a while for it to kick in. You you, you can't do without it. It becomes like breath to you. It's the same with speaking in tongues. When you speak in tongues on a regular basis, you never stop. You never stop because you realize the difference that it makes to your life and your daily life. And I'll be talking a lot more about that when we do that in November. But looking at the church in Acts is very important for us today. I'm an old-style Pentecostal. I believe that Jesus is our model for today. That, That what he did, he calls us to do. That Jesus is the pattern of our lives today. He's the great model. You say, well, he's perfect, true, but we can still follow him imperfectly. And after all, what is the Holy Spirit trying to do? The Holy Spirit is trying to make us more like the Lord. He's transforming us into the image of Jesus. So if we want to know what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in our lives, look at Jesus. And after all, Jesus is the head, and what are we? The body. And because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus still wants to do what he did when he was on the earth, in his physical body on the earth, which is now in heaven, Now Jesus is still wanting to do the same things that he did, only through his spiritual body, the body of Christ. We're his hands, we're his voice. He hasn't changed. And this is important because when we look at the book of Acts and the church of Acts, uh, right at the beginning of Acts, I looked at this last week, it says, as Luke, who wrote Acts and the Gospel as a two-volume book, he says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Notice Luke puts doing first. So Luke says it's very important to see what Jesus did, not just what he said, why? Because it's the model. And the Acts of the Apostles, really we should call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see today. But the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, is simply the continuation of the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth through his body, the church. In Luke's gospel, it was through his own physical body. He says, it's better that I go away, because I will send another comforter, another called alongside the Holy Spirit. And what will he do? He'll take from me, he'll speak from me. And so the Holy Spirit comes, as we will see, to do the works of Jesus through us. So the book of Acts is a continuation of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he hasn't stopped his ministry on earth, but now he's going to multiply his ministry on earth through the body of Christ. And you see in the book of Acts, they do exactly the things that Jesus was doing in the same manner, miracles, healings, preaching the gospel, exactly the same principles continue. And so when we look at our lives, not just church in general, but our lives, and go to the Gospels and to the Acts of the Apostles, we have to ask ourselves, are we measuring up to the model and the principles and the example, not only of Jesus and his disciples in the Gospels, but of the early church, the first church? We're looking at the first church that ever existed, the first New Testament church that ever existed in Acts chapter 2. And we're saying, what was the nature of this church? What did it prize? What was its its principles? If you were to describe in a nutshell what the first church was like, how would you describe it and would you have the same description of church or churches today? And so if we go to Acts chapter 2, although uh, I'll be going a bit earlier than this, just, just to show you the church that we're talking about, the first description of the first church, Acts chapter 2 and verse, well let's start from verse 40. This is a picture of the first church. As we read this, and next week I'll be going in detail into this passage, I want you to think, Luke is describing the first church, he's describing what it was like and what was important to them and what was known about them. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, this is Peter, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. First thing I want to say, and I'll be talking about this next week, is that the church was nothing like the world. I'll say that again. The church was nothing like the world. Very often the church, or it seems that churches are trying increasingly to become like the world, to reach the world. But the world doesn't need a church like the world, because nobody does the world better than the world. The world is looking for a totally different alternative. And I'll talk about that next week, but these were not of the world. Be saved, this was the message, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their church daily those who were being saved. Next week, I will unpackage those verses. But in order to understand the church of those verses, we have to understand the birthing process. Where did that church come from? And we, last week, spent some time in the first chapter of Acts and linked the gospel to Acts. And we saw a number of things about Jesus speaking to the disciples and emphasizing in chapter 1 that John baptized in water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He said to them, wait, in verse 4, for the promise of the Father. Now, Jesus was saying that before you can be the Acts chapter two church, you need to be the Acts chap- have an Acts chapter uh, one, or chapter verse chapter two verse one, if you like experience. So before we be- we say with the Acts chapter two church, we have to go through Acts chapter one, and Acts chapter one says you need power. You see, I could go through many of those uh, principles of the early church that we just read. The apostles' teaching, gathering in the temple, generous giving, breaking bread and going from house to house, prayer. Um, I could go through many of those things, praising God, having favor. But you see, that church without the Pentecost experience would be powerless. Can you imagine if if Acts chapter 2 was reversed? And in many churches, we have people trying to be the Acts chapter two, but without power, without true Holy Spirit anointing. There are many dead. There are many dead churches with home groups. There's many a dead preacher preaching dead doctrine. There's many people that give to dead churches, charitable acts. There's many so-called fellowshipping that goes on in so-called churches. And yet there's no anointing, there's no power, there's no supernatural, there's no miraculous. You can counterfeit the church of Acts chapter 2. And that's why Luke is saying, and Jesus is saying to to, to the disciples, you need an experience of the Holy Spirit before you can be an authentic church. It doesn't come afterwards, it comes before Everything that you are and everything that you do as a church or as a believer comes out of the power of your Pentecostal experience. Everything. And we've got things jumbled up in the church in Great Britain. People aren't looking for that Pentecostal experience. Some people think they've got it, don't, know, don't even know if they've got it. Don't even know what the signs of it are. And are moving along like Samson, who did not know that the Holy Spirit wasn't there, But these people don't have it in the first place. So imagine Acts chapter 2 without Pentecost. Imagine it. Imagine the church. First of all, they wouldn't have had all those people get saved, would they? Because the first church, those thousands that got saved, they got saved out of the power of Pentecost. The power of the witness of Pentecost and the power of Holy Spirit anointed preaching. Because guess who saves? It's the Holy Spirit. John said the Holy Spirit will come and he will convict people of sin, righteousness and the judgment of the devil. It's the Holy Spirit that saves people. Without the Holy Spirit, nobody gets saved. But with the Holy Spirit and a church filled with the Holy Spirit that's prepared to do the work of witness, people are going to get saved. Why aren't people getting saved in Great Britain? Because there's not enough Holy Ghost witnessing going on. If you don't if the word's not shared, it doesn't save. Why are they not getting saved? Paul says in Romans 10. Well because they're not hearing the gospel. Why are they not hearing the gospel? Because no one's sharing the gospel. Why are they not sharing the gospel? Because nobody's sending people or telling people that that's what we're meant to do. Share the gospel. And so when there's a shutdown in Holy Ghost, gospel messaging, people don't get saved. And that's the testimony of this nation for the last few generations. Coming out of the Victorian era, with a few exceptions, like the early Pentecostal revival, there's been very little gospel sharing in this nation, and millions are dying in their sins because of it. And so we need an experience of Pentecost. And look how the whole of the vision of this church is mission-minded. I mean, chapter 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power. Maurice Sorello, I always think of this first when I think of Maurice Sorello. P-O-W-E-R, power. But he always says this, power, not goosebumps. When you receive power, not goosebumps. And what he means by that is that this is power for a purpose, this isn't power just to play around or to roll around or to say, oh, I can feel him. Or it's, 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 it's a power for a purpose. It's not just a power for indulgence. It's not a power for indulgence. It's a power for a job. And what was that power for? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and what are you going to do with it? And you will be witnesses... To me, in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. This Acts church was given a mandate, and the mandate wasn't to stay in Jerusalem. In fact, God allowed a persecution to take place to get them out of Jerusalem. Because they had no intention of leaving Jerusalem. Do you know that? You can tell that. They had no intention. Because although Jesus had said to the ends of the world, they did not have a global missions mindset at the time. Not at the time. They didn't understand. I mean, it was quite a while before. I mean, Peter heard that, didn't he? You shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Maybe he thought that Jesus was saying to all the Jews in the end of the earth. Because later on, when he's uh, meditating on the Lord on that roof, and Jesus visits him in a vision and says, eat of the unclean things. He says, no, I've never done that. I can't do that. And Jesus says, don't argue with me. I've made foods clean. Because the law had been done away with. And then Jesus was astonished when he, I mean, Peter was astonished when later on, he preached to the Gentiles and he got saved. He was astonished. He couldn't believe it. And when he went back to the disciples, they couldn't believe it either. And he said, look, I'm telling you, they got saved. How do you know they got saved? Because the Holy Spirit fell upon them. So they're, they're, there was a lot of change to go in their mindset. They didn't understand that Jesus was calling them at that time to be a global missionary, to go to the ends of the world. So we find that the church of the book of Acts, from its intention, was a missionary body. I mean, in July, we spent a whole month, didn't we, focusing on missions and the calling of global missions. And, and what is the mission statement of Kensington Temple London City Church? Can anyone tell me what the mission statement is? London and the world for Christ. There on the Revival Times. London and the world for Christ. Now, if we're in the book of Acts... We have to be careful not to make their mistake like they did in the beginning, although they'd been told the mission statement. The mission statement for the early church was a bit like the mission statement for Kensington Temple, the early church. It was Jerusalem and the world for Christ. Have you thought? I never thought about that, actually, till then. So their mission statement on their revival times was Jerusalem and the world for Christ, or it should have been. That's what God Jerusalem. So they were to have... This global vision of taking the gospel and, uh, you know, let's hope that it doesn't take a persecution in London to drive Kensington Temple out into the four corners of the world, eh? Let's hope that we'll take, as we are doing, that we will increasingly take the mandate of missions and go, not just into London town, but into the four corners of the earth and the places that... We especially go. Not just to go, but to give and, and, and to pray. This was an end-time, spirit-baptized community. It was a spirit-empowered community. It was spirit-filled. We'll see that in Peter's sermon, he's addressing the new people as, in, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on my servants and my handmaidens. That was a revolutionary. That women were now considered part of the team. I mean, Jesus' had, Jesus's greatest supporters were women in the New Testament. Wealthy women looked after him, and, and Luke was very, this is a big thing for Luke. This astonished Luke, and in both Luke and Acts, he just says, I'm going to show you how much God values and uses women. But, you know, we see that before, in the upper room, it wasn't just men. It was women, And yet in all the synagogues, women and men were separated. Something special was going on. Spirit on my handmaidens and my servants. And they will prophesy. God was was raising up or beginning or starting, and, and his first sermon defining the church was your prophets. Your prophets. How about this? We're starting a new church, Kensington Temple, today. And I come to you and I say, I've got a key scripture for what's going on here today and it is the Spirit of the Lord is upon you. And the Spirit of the Lord is going to use you. You're going to see visions and dreams. And you're going to go into all the world and prophesy. You're going to be God's prophets. God's gospel's prophets. Their business was to be witnesses. This is what it was all about. The first church was a witnessing church. That's what they were born for. And you will receive power, and you will be witnesses. It was all about witnessing. It was all about evangelism. It was all about mission. And then that being the major thrust, we then see what happened to these new converts and how they were assimilated into this vibrant, spirit-filled community. Now, this is the, what it says at the beginning of Acts, and this is where we're left at the end of Acts, this mission community. I mean, if we look at the end of Acts, Acts chapter 28. Now, Paul, is, the, the, the Gentile mission is well underway, and, uh, and Paul is, is in Rome, and he's still trying to speak to the Jews, but they're still not listening, and he says, well, look, hearing you hear and hearing you don't hear, seeing you don't see, will take this to the world, in verse 27. And then verse 28, you see, as Acts started, so it's finishing. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. It's just like the beginning. It's all about the kingdom of God. When Jesus was raised from the dead between his resurrection and ascension, those 40 days, he was teaching his disciples things about the kingdom of God. Jesus came to minister to the kingdom of God and told them, you'll be witnesses to me. Right at the end, we still see Paul saying, we're taking this to the world, and he is preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things about Jesus with boldness and confidence. So right at the beginning of Acts and right at the end of Acts, we find that this is all about getting the gospel out into the world and making disciples. When we speak about this spirit empowering on Pentecost, a famous scholar, Robert Menzies, says this. He says, the gift of the spirit is, quote, a prophetic enabling which empowers one for participation in the mission of God. A prophetic enabling which empowers one for participation in the mission of God. Not just an enabling, but a prophetic. See, what people don't realize is that when, you wit- when you're filled with the Spirit, when you witness, it's not just you speaking. It's not you, like, you've got a Jehovah's Witness trying to give his doctrine. You've got a Mormon trying to give her doctrine. And you've got a Pentecostal trying to give their doctrine. No, one of those three should be prophetic. One of those things, three, should be filled of the Holy Spirit. One of those things, three, should have God, the Holy Spirit, pouring out. That's what that's what should be happening. And uh, when they were in the upper room, they were united. I mentioned this last week, time and time again. We see in, in Luke's Acts when he speaks about the church, unity, unity, and unity always comes from purpose. You can't have unity without purpose. You can't have unity. Oh, we're all united. Doing what? And the reason that there is disunity in churches is usually, usually down to that they're not not agreed in purpose or following a purpose. Because if the church is not mobilized for purpose, left to itself, it'll just fight amongst itself but when a church understands its purpose and is mobilized towards that pers- purpose, all the pettiness starts to fall away. Well, some of it, or most of it. Show me a petty Christian, I'll show you somebody that's not part of the early church of Acts. That's not interested in the purpose of the gospel. They're too busy complaining about this brother or that sister or the way this is done or that done or how, you know. That's what they're too worried about. Why? Because they they got no purpose, so they're just... Finding stuff to get involved in that's not edifying. They were in one accord and one purpose in that upper room. They were waiting for God's power. We need to understand, we can't do anything without God's power. We can't do anything. Can you imagine Jesus says, wait until you receive power from on high. And they go, yeah, whatever, and they're out. Can you imagine them going out of that upper room... The day before Pentecost to witness. Do you th- what do you think would have happened? Do you think 3,000 had got saved? Do you think God's plan would have. What would have happened? It would have been a disaster. Because Jesus himself did not minister the gospel until he himself was baptized by the Holy Spirit. He didn't preach a sermon, he didn't win one soul to Christ, he didn't do one miracle. Most he did was debate as a young lad with the scholars as he was getting into the word. But when John baptized him in the water and the Holy Spirit came down upon him, the next thing that happened is the Holy Spirit thrust him out to face the devil. And then straight after that, he began three years of Holy Spirit ministry. Now, if Jesus was a Pentecostal, how much more do we need to be a Pentecostal? You know what I'm saying? By experience. We need it. We need the power of God in our lives. And the Holy Spirit, he's not going to anoint what he's not doing. David Youngie Cho was right. One of the most excellent books ever on the Holy Spirit. David Youngie Cho, The Holy Spirit, My Senior Partner. Well, the Acts of the Apostle shows us that this is, what ex- this is what took place. That the Holy Spirit became the senior partner in the church, the body of Christ. The senior partner. The Holy Spirit is, is mostly the junior partner in 99.9% of Western Christian lives. It's a junior depart- partner. The junior partner. Why? Because we tell him what we want when we want when he can manifest, how he can manifest. I know people who don't even, they they said to me, well, I remember one person, I don't want to speak in tongues, well, you don't have to. I don't want to speak in tongues, well, you don't have to. You don't have to. But there, you're the senior partner, are you? You're telling the Holy Spirit how to baptize you because you don't want to speak in tongues. And you know the Holy Spirit is so gracious that it's amazing how, how he still works in our lives as junior partner." We need to learn. I need to learn. We all need to learn increasingly what it means to be associate minister to the Holy Spirit in our lives. But what we do is we sort of get up, we decide what we're going to do, we make the decisions, and we hope that the Holy Spirit's going to bless it. Sometimes, as crazy as it is, he does. He's such a humble Holy Spirit. Do you know that? He's so humble, and yet we treat him like some junior partner He was the senior partner in the church. And everything that Jesus did in his ministry was by the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? Everything he did. He did not speak except by and through the Holy Spirit. We've seen this in in Acts chapter 1, verse 2. All that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he threw the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles. So the Holy Spirit has come to bring from Jesus, but you know, when Jesus was ministering on earth, the Holy Spirit was his senior partner because it was the Holy Spirit that communicated what his father was doing. In fact, Jesus used the Holy Spirit as senior partner because without his senior partner, Jesus said, I'm not doing the business of God. And he waited 30 years for the senior partner the Holy Spirit to turn up and fall upon him and said, now you're here, senior partner, let's do it. And then the same senior partner has been sent for us because the Lord Jesus knows that without the senior partnership of the Holy Spirit, we can't do anything. That's why they were told, stay in Jerusalem until the day of Pentecost comes. And notice how few people were left at the end of Jesus' ministry. I mean, three years and 120 people in the upper room. It's not much, is it? It's not much of a legacy. I know he appeared to 500 people. Well, where were they? Where were they? Why weren't they waiting for the power? But here we have in the upper room, these few people, just over 120, 120 people. Do you know... I've been looking and reading books on Jesus and his discipleship ministry and uh, your legacy is not what you leave for God. Your legacy is who you leave for God. I'm going to say that again. When it's all done and dusted and Jesus returns or you, return, or you go to him, And and Jesus says, what have you done? Jesus won't say to you, I'm convinced that his first question will not be, what have you done for me in your life? I believe he'll ask you, who have you left me at the end of your life? Who? And that your legacy will be the disciples and the people that you have poured your life into. That's why we all need to be discipled. Someone needs to pour their life into me. Someone needs to pour their life into you. And we need to pour our life into somebody else. So that when we've gone, there's others that have carried on what we're doing. And there was only 12 and a few others on top of that that Jesus left. But with the Holy Spirit, Jesus had prepared them to be the church of Acts and also to be the missionary, and they had expectation in that room. They were praying. They knew the Holy Spirit was coming, and they had expectation. And we know this passage well, that as they were there in chapter 2, verse 1, in one accord, then the Holy Spirit fell, a rushing wind, divided tongues of fire, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then listen, as they went out, and they're speaking in tongues and praising God, it says that everybody heard them in their own language and were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are these not those who who speak Galileans? And how is it we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And look at this, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. Uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. Can you see this missionary global theme has continued? It's continued right there on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, giving them the gifts of tongues, decides that those tongues are going to be heard in every language under the earth, I believe every language on the earth. They could hear God. The Holy Spirit had come to say, I have come to bring this gospel to everybody. Everybody. No longer for the Jew only, the Jew first, but also for all the nations of the earth. And this was on the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost was was not by accident. The Feast of Pentecost, which was, and the word Pentecost, penti means 50. So the, the, uh, the, the, the feast of Pentecost was always 50 days after um, Passover, thank you. And so this feast was known, it was a harvest feast. It was like a harvest festival, the Feast of Weeks. This is what this was. Now, the important thing to recognize is that when did the first Pentecost feast take place? The first time that the Jews ever celebrated Pentecost. Well, that was, as you say, 50 days after the first Passover. When that Passover took place, when the children of Israel under Moses were in Egypt... And they put that lamb's blood on their door, and they were released. Fifty days later, they celebrated the first Passover. And that Passover wasn't to do with harvest yet, because they were in the wilderness. The harvest aspect took place when they came into the promised land. But do you know what happened on the day of Pentecost? Do you know what happened on the first day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit didn't come down. What came down? The law, the law came down on the first day, the first Pentecost that ever took place. And how many people died? 3,000. And how many people were saved in here in chapter 2? The Holy Spirit is saying something. And you can compare, I haven't got time, but if you want to, you can compare the first Pentecost and 3,000 people died... And the Holy Spirit didn't come down, the law came down. With the Pentecost and the book of Acts, where 3,000 people got saved and the Holy Spirit came down. And 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2 to 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 2 to 18, is where Paul is comparing the two Pentecosts. Where the law came on tablets of clay, but when the Spirit came, he wrote on people's hearts... And, he, and, he, and the glory was on the face of Moses, and people couldn't take it, but now the glory was in his people. And the big difference is, is that now that the Holy Spirit had come, the law had passed away. The first church was not a legalistic church. It wasn't meant to be. It had to learn. The first church was totally and utterly free from the law. And it had to learn that. And Paul understood this, and when he wrote, the letter of Galatians, he had to correct and imbalance and even Peter. You see, the first church had to catch up with who it was. The first church had to, had to look at itself and say, wait a second, who are we? And often the first church missed who it really was. I've already said, Jesus said, to the ends of the earth. And they were staying in Jerusalem. And God said, how am I going to get you to the ends of the earth? And how am I going to get you to the Gentiles Because you're not moving, and you allowed a persecution to scatter them, and got them out, and got them moving. And even then, it took quite a few years, right? Peter's preaching to the Gentiles was one-off. They got saved, the Holy Spirit fell, they spoke in tongues. He didn't do any more of that, because he didn't do any more, it was a one-off. And it's not until about Acts chapter 13, 14, that the Gentiles are really coming into, into the kingdom, It's taking 14 or so chapters for the And when they are coming into the kingdom, the church in Jerusalem doesn't know how to handle them. And they have to have a big conference in Acts chapter 15 to say, what are we going to do with these new Gentiles who are believers? Do we have to circumcise them? And they said, no. No, we don't have to circumcise them. Because the Pentecost is, they have received the Holy Spirit without circumcision. The first first Pentecost brought the law, the second Pentecost brought the Spirit, therefore we no longer need the law. The Holy Spirit has replaced the law of Moses. You don't need the Ten Commandments anymore. You say you need the Ten Commandments, it's a slap in the face of the Holy Spirit. You don't need the Ten Commandments because the Holy Spirit comes with the principle of love. And if you follow the principles of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, you'll never do any of those things that you're warned not to do in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments has passed away. It's interesting to look at, interesting to study, profitable to study, but we don't live by those things. And so there was birth, the new move of the Holy Spirit, a move that was freedom. And the church had to catch up on it. It had to become what it already, what God had made it. it. You see in this infancy... That although they've received the power, they don't know who they are. And that's a lesson for us today. This process of self-discovery in the book of Acts. The church discovering what the gospel is in all its formats. Not knowing what, not many of them, not understanding when Gentiles got saved. Even though Jesus had said to the ends of the the earth. And so today it's the same if the church of Pentecost uh, or the church of Acts and its history, struggled with understanding itself. Maybe we are struggling with understanding who we are as Christians and the things that God prizes and what God, and the things that God emphasizes. And the book of Acts teaches us, as we study it, what God intends his church to be like. And when they make mistakes about it, it should emphasize to us what God made the church to be like. And so as we study the book of Acts, and we see the early church in its glory and its blessing, but also in its infancy, as it begins to discover aspects of itself, and is amazed when the Gentiles get saved, even though Jesus had said, (laughs) go into all the world, and they were amazed when it took place. Could it be that we, like the book of Acts, Christians, we need to reflect in the word of God like a mirror. The book of Acts is a mirror. You ask yourself, am I a book of Acts Christian? Because there's only one type of Christian, and it's the pattern that we're given in the book of Acts. Are we an Acts chapter 2 church, where we're trying to be. Maybe when we look at the book of Acts, you can perhaps, and next week as well, you can perhaps understand the emphases in Kensington Temple. The emphasis on mission, the emphasis on cells, as we'll see. The emphasis on an evangelism course today to help people. The emphases. And maybe you see where we need to go, but I am convinced that the model and principles displayed in the book of Acts for the book of Acts church is the models and principles for all times. Yes, we're modern and we can apply it in modern ways, but we don't change the principles. Next Sunday, we're going to go back to that first passage I read at, at the beginning, Acts 2, 42 onwards, and we're going to see what the principle was. If, God, if, if someone was to describe you as a Christian, would that description be similar to describing the church of Acts chapter 2, 42? If someone was to describe Kensington Temple as a church, would they pick out the same principles and values of the church of Acts 42? And if not, why not? And what are we doing about it? God bless you.